0: So this week, we decided to do an episode on fear, specifically, what do you fear? And I sat down with Iman Kafel, who you guys know has been on the show a bunch, the host of Project Sapient. Uh, I also brought on Chris Otero, who had been on last week and many other times, and Charlie sat in with us uh, this week as well. And we went through a whole list of people's phobias, what they dealt with as kids how to inform the rest of their lives, what fears they had now, um, and we even got uh, some pretty personal stories out of it, which was interesting. Um, what was really interesting to me because I obviously we did this episode because we're recording it the day before Halloween. You guys are listening to it a couple of days after Halloween, but and so I, I that was an easy play to kind of make it all about fear. But I think we ended up getting a decent amount of material on mental health, resilience, um it kind of some interesting other points that kind of stemmed from that discussion. So I think you guys are gonna really enjoy it. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer and this is the Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this week's episode of the Weekly Havoc, where we engage in a roundtable discussion with the staff and writers at Havoc Journal. Try to make a little order out of chaos. Ayman Kafel is an eight-year Army vet. He served in Operation Iraqi Freedom. He is now a police officer with time and patrol, plainclothes, Metro SWAT, and a detective in major crimes. Currently, he's a detective in our narcotics task force with the DEA, as well as serving on the DEA special response team. He is also the host of a training company and podcast Project Sapient that tries to fill the gap between the current training and equipment being provided to law enforcement and what should be provided. Iman, welcome back to the show, man.
1: Hey, what's going on, Chris? Thank you for hey, having me.
0: Do I have that right? That was an intro from a long time ago. You guys actually also have like a training company aspect to project sapien yeah
1: yeah we still uh, we still we still have that uh but the podcast is obviously growing to a point where we're like well let's keep going with the podcast before you know yeah. so we're working yeah. out that
0: that stuff and project sapien is crushing it as a podcast yeah uh christopher otero is back with us this week two weeks in a row chris he is a new york native who is an army brat and then went on to serve 22 years in the army as an armor and intelligence officer spending almost all of his career in combat arms and special operations assignments before finishing off his career as the head of an ROTC program. Currently, he works for New York State and is deeply involved in volunteer firefighting, which I'm sure we will hear about throughout this episode. Uh, And if not, we'll certainly hear about it at the end when I ask him about it. Chris, welcome back to the show.
2: Hey, thanks for having me today.
0: My pleasure. And of course, Charlie Faint who last week studiously avoided our episode on porn by getting himself trapped (laughs) in traffic uh, and, and, and unable to make it. Even though he was on West Point, he could not make it home in time for the podcast, which we are going to assume had nothing to do with the subject matter whatsoever. But anyway, he's here. and I'm glad he is. As you guys all know, Charlie's an active duty Army intelligence officer. He's the deputy director of the Modern War Institute at West Point. He has previous assignments throughout special operations, including JSOC seven deployments in addition in addition to operational tours in Egypt, the Philippines, and Korea, three master's degrees, currently a Ph.D. candidate, on the board of the Veterans Repertory Theater, executive director of the Second Mission Foundation, and of course, owner of the Havoc Journal. Hi, Charlie.
3: Hey, Chris. I, I had to get a giggle out of that introduction. <laughs> um, and for, for anyone who was actually here at West Point last week, when we were playing in Wake Forest, with the three-hour wait to get back on the post after I left to take my daughter in, I would have much rather been on the show. But uh, I think uh, my career took a lot less of a risk by sitting in my car for that episode <laughs> than uh, being on, given the subject of, of last <laughs> episode's uh, podcast, Chris.
0: All right, we can have part two. We can always have part two. <laughs> no,
3: no, that's quite, all right. More, that's quite all right. more where that came from.
0: <laughs> just scratched the surface. All right, so this week a, uh, a. A good chance for Charlie to avoid any career implications uh, by discussing fear, right? So obviously this is because of Halloween, and we want to do something that was sort of relevant, even though you guys are going to be hearing this a couple of days after Halloween. Um, but let's start with let's start with maybe the trivial. Let's start with where we were as kids. So in my experience, I'll set the table a little bit. In my experience, to me, what was jarring about the military, and I, I got into the military later in life. I, I think I was 31 or 32 when I actually went through basic, so I was really old when I got in. And what jarred me about being in the military was that there were primal fears that I was forced to confront that I had not confronted since I was a kid. And I'm talking about extreme heights, confined spaces, um, you know, jumping out of planes, you know. Uh, height stuff, all, all that, um, extreme cold, extreme heat, uh, just primal fears, things that, that you're not always used to. And I thought I was pretty tough. I'd, I'd been working in the prisons a long time. I'd bounced in nightclubs. I'd had 700 different times that I'd laid hands on somebody in a in some sort of altercation. But I, dealing with people never wigged me out, but dealing with something that was just, um, just something you couldn't negotiate with, something you couldn't talk to, something you couldn't really assess. Uh, you couldn't assess its personality, just something that was primal and um, elemental was uh, was jarring for me. And it reminded me that, uh, oh, wow, this is something I haven't felt since I was a kid. And I had to nut up and uh, figure out ways to get over that hump. So I want to kind of go around the horn and talk. If you guys can remember about what your fears were originally as a kid. And did you get over them? Did you not? So Charlie, maybe let me pimp you out uh, since you missed last week's episode. Where, <laughs> what, what, what do you think? Oh, as a kid now, I mean, you were exposed to a lot of military hardships by proxy through your dad, but did you have other fears as a kid growing up? Was there something that just always got you? Oh, yeah, man. Out? I
3: mean, th- one of the reasons I, I like this Topic, uh, In addition to being Halloween themed, is this something I think everyone can relate to? And one of the reasons I was excited that we got Chris and Ayman on and you and me is all of us are vets, so we can represent the military side of fear. We also got Chris Otero, who is a firefighter, and Iman, who's now a cop, and you who bounced in bars and things like that. And I think we can cover a wide gamut of fear and, and how to get over it. I think this will be a useful lesson for a lot of people. So in answer to your question, when I was a kid, I was scared of everything. I was scared of girls because I was, you know, six five and tenth grade and gangly and uncoordinated. I was scared of heights. I was so scared. they were also
0: scared of you, I should say.
3: <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm I'm a very unscary guy. I'm a very friendly guy. But but I was six also five
0: and gangly has a lot of bad precedent. <laughs> I think. <with laughs> yeah, children, yeah. Right?
3: Well, fortunately, I was so scared of girls, I couldn't even be creepy because I, I couldn't get close <laughs> enough to them. So, um, so I was I was afraid of, of social interaction. I was afraid of failure. Um, we talked about my, my dad and what I was exposed to by proxy. I knew my dad get, did some cool stuff, but he was hardcore, original soft and he didn't talk about it. So I didn't know the types of things he was doing. I went to the, the drop zone and watched him jump a couple of times, but it didn't seem that bad mm-hmm. until I'm up in the plane. Right. When with him standing behind me, cause dad came down to, to jump mm-hmm. with me. Uh, he was on status. I went to jump school in 91. So right after my freshman year of college, and I'll tell you, Chris, what I found in everything I've been afraid of, the fear of the thing is always worse than the thing. Yeah. So talking to girls, actually doing it when I screwed up the, the courage to do it, probably about my late late freshman year of college, found out girls weren't that scary. Found out jumping out of an airplane isn't that bad, Repelling off the side of a building is not that scary. Eventually being downrange in Iraq and Afghanistan is not that scary. The fear of it is worse. And the fear of it is what keeps people from doing things. So the way that, that I got over most of those, and I still don't like to jump out of planes. I I did it. I did it for a number of years and I know you did. And Chris Otero did as well. I don't like it, but I just do it. And I think something that helps me is seeing everybody else do these things first. So I'm probably not going to die by doing X because so many other people have done it. So I think that that's my opening salvo on this, Chris, is the the fear of it is always worse than the thing. And you're probably going to be okay if other people are doing it and not getting hurt.
0: So what was a young Chris Otero's fears?
3: Uh, I had two of them, really. Uh, the first one is
2: one which I'm now dealing with is claustrophobia. Yeah. I didn't like to be squeezed. I didn't like to be, you know, pinched on in on anything and, you know, to this day, I still feel very uncomfortable with, and that's been one thing which I can talk a little bit about later. How being involved in the firefighter training has really kind of, yep. you know, caused me to confront that fear. Because frankly, there is so much in there that just hits on that claustrophobia. You know, if not the gear, going into tunnels, going to confined places, even going into a smoke-filled building—I mean, with zero visibility—really kind of, you know, really kind of hits that. But I had a really interesting fear when I was a kid because anybody that knows me knows I have a little bit of a speech impediment. It made mean, people hear it in the voice. And I've been through a lot of speech therapy over the years just to try to address it. And one of the things that I really feared growing up was not being taken seriously. I mean, all oh. arrogance aside, I think I'm a relatively intelligent guy, fairly well read. And, you know, several times in the past, I've had instances where people have either ignored me or had you know, really nagged me and said, hey, look, I'm not listening to you. Uh, I actually failed one of my briefings in intelligence advanced course because the instructor tuned me out and said, you know, when I got done with it and I thought it was one of the best briefings I did, the instructor said, hey, do you realize how distracting your voice is? You need to change that because I tuned you out and failed you and gave you a no-go on that. And psychologically, it was just one of those things that that's happened in high school. It happened in college. It happened, you know, even into the Army. Where, you know, I've gotten a lot better over the years dealing with it, but it's still one of those things that kind of burns on occasion. Because especially if the person that is doing it is someone that I don't particularly respect, I'm like, yeah. who the hell are you to basically say that to me? But, you know, I think at this point in my life, I'm accomplished enough where I don't take it personally, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Sometimes it still doesn't
0: <laughs> Well that's what makes it such a such a elemental and primal fear, right? Because it always right. it's like your touchstone of fear. It always comes back to you in some way and even when you get over it it always is kind of a sore spot.
2: Um Yeah, one yeah, one thing that I've uh, embraced to try to get over it over the years is that I really kind of dove into public speaking. I mean, when mm-hmm. I was in high school, that was actually one strategy my dad said, you got to get over this. And you know, got me like an exception to join Toastmasters mm-hmm. in high school. I mean, there used to be an age limit to it, but they kind of waived it and started doing all the speeches and everything like that. And that actually kind of helped me get a little bit better about it.
0: What, how did that impact you as an officer, especially as a junior officer, when you first took command or even when you just first had soldiers under you? Did, did the public speaking rear its head right away? Was that something that was a concern to you?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, like you'd, go, you'd come around a corner and you'd hear a private mimic your voice. Yeah. And you know, mimicking oh, the yeah. speech pattern and all that. You know, and in some ways I got just kind of turned into a joke. I was like, you know what? I was like, that's really good. You know, let's let work with me. We can try to do it a little bit better. You know, and the privates, you know, got into it. And I, I mean, all arrogance, I thought I was a decent lieutenant. So, you know, on the competency side, if the worst thing they're hitting me up on is I have a weird voice, then you know, whatever. Gotcha. gotcha. You know, so I kind of you know rolled with it with that. Uh honestly the one time it really hit me hard in the army besides that time in advance course was that this one Colonel that I really looked up to that I thought was just kind of like really an amazing dude. And I came around the corner one day and he was just like totally like talking shit about me to somebody else about the voice. And I'm like, buddy, I'm your, I'm your S2. I basically am the one basically talking to you and you send soldiers to harm's way based off of things I tell you. And this is what I get out of you, you know, fuck that. You know, and so that was actually something that you know kind of yeah. got to me. But you know, once again, it's just one of those things you just deal with and move on.
0: Iman, what about you? what were your What were your initial fears in life? So,
1: when I was a kid growing up, um, before I came to the U.S., so I immigrated to the U.S. in uh, 1988. And um, I lived through two different civil wars, one in Liberia, uh, which I think we've talked about Charles Taylor and brought his education from Harvard and decided to start a coup and we we had to get out of there. We've got a lot
0: more to talk about on a different yeah. episode too yeah, yeah. a lot yeah. more to mind there yeah.
1: yeah yeah that's why i'm saving that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> later time but nobody uh, asked other- about it pretend he didn't yeah. say anything yeah. yeah yeah and then uh the other one was in lebanon um you know we we'd vacation in lebanon after my dad works uh, down in liberia so we'd go up to lebanon back to our village and uh, vacation there and uh at the time yeah civil war was still happened and so um I never remember our flight, our ride home, what it looked like. But one thing I distinctly remember is artillery hitting the side of the mountain and uh, militias driving through uh, the village. And it scared the crap out of me. You know, here I am, a little kid. Uh, I remember the artillery was I was riding one of those uh, (laughs) those old school uh, cars where you pedal. Uh, you know, to get it moving and all that. You know, that's how old, that's how old school that is. And uh, I remember I'm um, going down the down the hill because I, I I love going down this hill in, in, in Lebanon. And mind you, nothing is safe in Lebanon. So this hill, I'm sure, was like down. Right. So as I'm starting, all of a sudden I see the, uh, I hear the booms. I look and I see the artillery hitting the side of the uh, mountain near my village. So I end up running home. And then my other fear is, I mean, my other memory is the uh, militias driving through and one of the villagers yelling running as fast as he could to warn everyone in the village that the militias are coming and I ran to my mother crying uh you know so so but those instances like early on in my childhood um those were the types of things I feared um and is you know later on in life as I grew up uh obviously these fears became something else especially when I first came to the U.S no idea, uh, about the U S, uh, landed in Boston, uh, December, and you can only imagine Boston in December, what that's like going from African heat, yep. to <laughs> to, uh, you know, ice cold in, in Boston. So, uh, I had to get myself a whole new wardrobe and everything. And, uh, just the fear of, of making brand new friends that I don't know the culture, you know, yep. as, as, yes. as a nine-year-old coming to the U S uh, or actually even younger, I was seven, uh, I was in second grade still and, uh, not knowing really much, but as a kid, you know, we're all resilient. We, we adapt real quick and, you know, made friends and everything. So, so those are like, were early, early fears of mine. Um, when I was, uh, when I was growing up.
0: So what I, what's interesting, I think it probably stood out to all of us. It certainly stood out to me is that Charlie and Chris have, you know, you guys included social fears, as as primal fears, which I think everybody can relate to, and I'm in, <laughs> I'm in, grew up in war zones, so it's 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 kind of funny. Look, now, did you have social fears? You know, you're you're a new kid. You're literally a fish out of water. You've shown up in a new country, but or was your head still like, hey, you know something? There's no artillery shells hitting the hill next to me. Whatever it is, it could be that bad. Or so, in I, other words, I, I, I was is-
1: very out. Yeah, I was very outgoing when I came to the US, um, just because I think for the fact that my family felt safe, we felt safe. I mean, I could walk down the street without worrying about artillery shells, you know, raining down or, or sniper fire from buildings or anything like that. So I think that part really brought me out to talk more.
0: So did you have social phobias growing up? Was that a thing or was it like, eh, it's just it's part of growing up. It was, it was never like a phobia. It was never a true fear.
1: Not really. My, my, my real, my real, uh, biggest fear was, uh, confronting my fears actually as a kid. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, that, that's something where as, as a kid, I actually went into martial arts, uh, cause I've always loved martial arts and that really uh, gave me a lot more confidence and built me up and, you know, really, really taught me a lot about myself uh, early on uh, in my childhood.
0: So the moral of the story that I'm picking up is that if you have a fear of talking to girls or a fear based off a of speech impediment, you really need to move to a war zone. Mm-hmm. And you, the, those <laughs> kind of you, that fear will go right out, out the right, right away. <laughs> Yeah. Um But, it, but it's interesting. Um, so let's talk about how those fears developed you and how they changed you and how they made life choices. And it seems, I mean, you're already going down that path because you're going, hey, I'm extroverted. I'm coming in. I'm willing to talk to people. I'm happy to be here. Just glad to be here. And and then you have this sense, inherent sense of justice and safety and the need to protect. It seems to me like that's you were solving those early fears. Like your life has been dedicated to solving those fears.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I'd say for the most part, yes. I mean, um, I, I dedicated most of my life, uh, confronting a lot of my fears, uh, head on, uh, cause that's just my personality. Um, and it, it, it really, uh, shaped me along the way as I, as I grew, um, you know, like getting into my first fight, I was really scared and, but, you know, I prevailed and I'm like, hell yeah, you know, and you get confidence and stuff like that, uh, through different things, sports and, and, you know, I, I was really paving my way, so to speak to kind of shape what I am now early, early on in my life.
0: Chris, do you feel like your early fears were a blessing? Do you feel like, hey, thanks to that, it spurred me to achieve what I've achieved? It spurred me to be who I am, and I'm really happy about that? Or do you feel like, no, I could have dodged that landmine. It would have been nice to not have that to deal with.
2: No, I mean, I wouldn't have it any other way, to be honest with you. I mean, I think we are the summation of a lot of things in our lives, and to wish that you didn't have to experience it would mean that you wished you were an entirely different person. I mean, the speech impediment stuff kind of drove me to, you know, to do better in a lot of different things, like the speech, like the Toastmasters thing. I mean, I think that I can be an effective public speaker, and I think I owe it to that because that was something that was a weakness in my game that I thought I need to address. And therefore, I went through it. It also gave me a little bit of a sense of resiliency as well. I mean, one thing that I see a lot of nowadays is I see... A lot of kids, because I get exposed to a lot of kids when I was working on the ROPC job, that just, they fold when at the first hint of adversity. And I'm like, what, because that person said that to you? I mean, come on, man, you know, get over it and get on with life. And, you know, a lot of people are going to say a lot of things to you over your life. And a lot of people are going to pass a lot of judgments on you. And many of them are going to be negative based off of whatever circumstance happened out there. Just get over it, move on to the next thing. Because they don't really matter. I think it, I kind of grew up with that sense of resiliency because of that. You know, and no, I mean I think that at the end of the day, the fears make you who you are, even as much as the successes or the certifications you got or the courses you went through. I mean, to not have that fear means that you're not really human. And you know, hey, I like being a human being.
0: Yeah, everybody's got their own load to to, to bear and um, their own cross to bear and and to shirk away from it or to have that mitigated i think it's funny um as a parent chris you know do you see that with have you seen that with your kids where you go you know something no i'm going to back off and let you deal with this because you, this is your cross to bear this is what's going to make you the person that you're going to enjoy being when you're older and um or do you find yourself you know uh having a hard time separating it and going no 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 you know something i I know how to mitigate this for you. Let me step in and, and
2: help you navigate some of this. No, if you just encapsulated the last 10 arguments, me and my wife have had, you know, with the <laughs> comment, yeah. you know, because, you know, she's a bit of a soft touch and, yeah. you know, you know, my oldest daughter very recently, you know, she's working at McDonald's and I mean, it's wall-to-wall sexual harassment from customers in there just because people treat fast food workers like crap, you know, and she'd come back home and, you know, obviously I'm not being uncaring or unsympathetic, but at the same token, I'm like, this is something you're going to have to, you know, experience in your life and deal with in your life and figure out strategies of how to mitigate it or tolerate it, you know, in order to, you know, get on to the next step. And, you know, my wife had a much different take on that. One other thing, I guess, especially the speech impediment thing kind of left me with a sense of, we're well, not necessarily sure call it justice, but definitely a sympathy towards those that, have a little something that you're trying to contest with. And that's something that I've had, you know, kind of all through my life. And it kind of has affected me in a couple different fashions, including even my political inclinations, I think. You know, in the sense that, you know, sometimes people get it sometimes people just have a thing that they gotta deal with. And, you know, my heart goes out to those people. Yep. And it's been kind of an interesting duality to I me, mean, because on one side, you know, I still have the army, you know, suck it up, buttercup, and just move on and do your thing. But then on the other hand, there is the small, you know, the small little boy part of me that remembers that, you know, hey, that really sucked when someone said something like that. Yeah. You know, it was no fault of your own I mean, right. The speech impediment is something that happened. Right. And so, you know, the folks that have some issues that they got to deal with, my heart's always going out to people that have been dumped on. And that still stays with me to this day.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because it's because it's, it's, it's kind of you're kind of playing both ends. uh understandably because you have a natural empathy for people struggling with something at the same time you also understand the inherent pride of overcoming those things on your own and learning the operating system that you need to internalize in order to deal with those difficulties so it's a it's it, it there's a it's an interesting dichotomy charlie what do you think about that about how to navigate how much um you know that kind of empathy uh versus toughness uh, debate, w- where do you straddle that line when it comes to dealing with these kind of fears?
3: So I think Chris Otero just brought up some great points, Chris. And one of the things I wanted to highlight was this issue of resilience. And I think a lot of the things that we talked about on the show today can be worked through just on the course of, of natural development. For example, Chris worked hard at overcoming a speech impediment. He was the army officer where you got to talk a lot, especially in intel branch. And you can tell now because you've had him on his show numerous times that he's, he's quite good at talking. And for me, uh, I, I mentioned fear of, of social interaction, fear of heights and things like that. You get enough reps on this type of things. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad, and you can work through them. And then another thing that Chris pointed out that I see often here at West Point, not just here at West Point, but when I was TA in grad school, et cetera, that a lot of young people have been so successful so long in their lives. And I don't mean coddled. I mean, they're just good that when they experience failure for the first time, it's super hard for them. Whereas guys like the four of us had that first experience very early on and we've built up the resilience to get through it. So I, I think that's, that's two points that Chris made, I think are worth revisiting Chris.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree. And we will, I, and I, the first thing that comes to mind was uh, I remember, I don't know if you guys did the same thing, but I remember reading, in the early to mid nineties, uh, those Dick Marcinko books about the founding of seal team six. And I remember red um, cell, yeah, because I read, yeah, red cell and then his original rogue warrior and all that. And I, I remember, I mean, those, I read those so much in, in high school that, uh, I, a lot of those points he made kind of stuck with me, but one of them was when he was recruiting for, uh, what became seal team six, he, uh, he, he said, I didn't look for the natural gazelles for the people that just were naturally good swimmers, the people that are naturally outstanding shooters. He's like, I look for the, and he'd look at where they finished in their buds class. He'd look for he'd look at their um, track records to see who was it that ended up doing really tough assignments, but wasn't the best at it, that, that had to deal with the shit that sucked and still made it through. And that's who he wanted to prioritize. And I thought that was just an interesting point, but to your point about um you know facing with dealing with adversity, there is something to toughness and to resilience um that's irreplaceable and it's never a delight to go through, but that's what makes it worthwhile at the end um i i and mean, I want to go to you on i guess where you stand now with fear, so how much so i think it's easy for probably someone that wants to play amateur psychiatrist and listen to all of us draw a pretty straight line from our childhood fears to the career choices we made to how our lives ended up playing out but now sitting here in the full the full scope of your identity right at your peak performance now what how much does fear play a role in your life how much are you doing because you're on autopilot how much are you doing because this is how it's always been from those childhood fears and how much of it is, nope, there's a fear that drives me every day. There's some insecurity, some neuroses, some fear that pushes me every day. And I'll I'll tell you right now, I'm going to put my finger, my thumb on the scale and, and tip it. I follow Iman's Instagram and I see the 4 a.m. workouts and the <laughs> weight loads. And I go, this is not a dude who is sitting around just getting comfortable on autopilot. So tell me about that and what fears drive you now.
1: All right. So- Speaking of fear, um, so I, I read a lot of uh, uh, Stoics and and uh, you know uh, past leaders and past uh, poets and and they have they you know I'm always uh, amazed by the insight they have into the human psychology, human an- anthropology, and you know they're not experts in any of those, but they just have that that thumbprint. So Seneca uh, once said that we suffer more in, uh, from imagination than in reality. So I really think about that all the time, right? When, when you know, so so every day at my job, I'm a police officer, and uh, you know, I'm not in patrol. I'm in plain clothes. I'm out there doing strategic stuff, um, you know, where my me and my guys are going are going to go into the danger zone, you know, so to speak. Me and my guys, like we are willingly, we know. This is where we're going. On the SWAT team, we know what the objective is. We know this is a really bad dude who's ready to shoot at cops, and now we're going in to get him because it has to be done. So, with fear, with me is is I use that to my advantage. Like we've learned in the military, where you may have uh, you may have more um, um, like you're you're more fearful of taking of of not doing your job essentially. Right. Uh, because that's my biggest fear. My biggest fear now is not being, uh, not to do my job well. And one of my guys get hurt as a result, uh, more than the actual mission itself, more than anything, kind of something that, um, I learned really hard out at war, uh, you know, and, and it was, it, it became very apparent to me, uh, now, you know, being in the military and going to war that the biggest fear that I will always have is failing my guys. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's something that Dave Grossman talked about I think in in the art of uh in in on killing uh, yeah. where he said you know he talked about the conscientious objector at the pull of a trigger that mm-hmm. people just like to shoot the gun to make the noise because their biggest fear even though there's a natural inclination to not kill a fellow human being their biggest fear is to let down their teammate or that that you know, perception that they're not yeah. pulling their weight. Um yeah. Chris for you how much does fear drive you now? I mean you You certainly didn't take the easy route once you got out of the army, Um, um, besides a challenging second career, then taking on volunteer firefighting. How much fear drives you?
2: It drives me, but it drives me some interesting ways. I think that on the physical side, I mean, I kind of talk about the claustrophobia and then, you know, in the fire training, kind of getting over it. Uh, Frankly, on a fire scene, you're so busy because there's like 10,000 things that are happening that the physical aspect of it just doesn't really bother me i mean charlie and i were talking the other day about i had a little bit of a little bit of a screw-up on a fire scene where my regulator popped off mm-hmm. and you know honestly the whole time i wasn't afraid at all It was i was going through the immediate action checklist in my head of all right i gotta do this i gotta go that okay we're in a regulator okay my tank's damaged i went through all that you know, and never once did I really feel like I was afraid of it, even though it really was a, a bad situation.
0: Were you in the uh, fire when the regulator popped off
2: or were you in a yeah, confined space? I was five feet away from it. Okay. I mean, yeah. you know, I was second person on the hose line. It happened. Mm-hmm. I went back to go check where we had, we couldn't get enough hose line to get into the room and heat was coming through the wall on the other side. Sure. And, sure. you know, so I went back to go see the eruption. ran face first, right into a piece of furniture and off it popped, you know, and lost it and so i had to basically go back to the safety light which was about 10 feet away but you know when you're in that kind of situation where just all the smoke is building up and all that it really does feel like a long distance on your knees when you're crawling but whatever i mean we got through that but i'll tell you the two fears that i deal with a lot is one what i mentioned was that you know if you fail in there and you die your troubles are over Right. The thing that I, the thing that I'm worried about is living Everyone else. and someone else dying is really the thing that I'm more worried about, you know, failing on that, you know, and one thing that I have had to deal do with this is that I'm doing this at 48, 49, 50 years old, and I'm dealing with 20, 22 year old, 23 year old kids and why I think I'm in relatively good shape. And this has been really good for getting in even better shape. You know, let's just say the recovery time from when I was 23 to now is just a little bit different. And so, you know, I'm very conscious of the physical limitations and making sure I overcome those so that I can keep up with the kids. I've been doing pretty successfully with so far. But, I mean, I think the thing that drives me, and this was the thing that I think drove me to a descent in the Army, was that, you know, I'm not going to say I'm cavalier about my own death. I mean, because that would be Mm -hmm. stupid to say Mm -hmm. no one wants to die. But I think the thing that really, really, you know, is like a knife at my side is if I make a mistake that causes someone else to die and I'm not there and I'm not paying attention to Someone gets burned, you know, because of me, particularly if they're young, which I know that sounds really weird, but at my age, you know, if I, yeah. if I get hurt, I mean, okay, I've lived my life, but right. if I screw up in a 23 year old kid, you know, who has their entire life ahead of them gets burned and no retirement, then, yeah, you know, but, when no, I mean, that really, really is going to sit there and I'm going to be that's going to be devastating, and I think that is the fear that drives me in this job right now.
0: So, Charlie, Iman, and Chris are both deeply motivated by a fear of, you know, letting down the team and and that having disastrous effects. Um, are you in that boat? Do you consider your fears to kind of be in that boat as well, or do you find that that they're kind of of a different nature now? I mean, are you the kind of person that? Say, if a difficult subject came up, would find a way to get stuck in traffic and leave somebody helpless <laughs> to talk about it by themselves. I'm just asking. I just, I just want to know where you're at. Yeah.
3: Well, it's good to know you're not holding a grudge over last week, Chris. <laughs> I, I, just, thought, I just thought
0: it was hilarious. but anyway, well, yeah, it, it absolutely
3: was. Well yeah. played. So it's way different for me now. You know what I'm doing now. The, the team that I have, are, of course, I don't want to let down my team. I don't, we have a very important mission here. But the consequences from what I do day to day are much lower. So if I have a bad lesson, which let's face, it never happens because I'm a great instructor but if I ever if I were to have a great lesson, the impact on that uh, is easily overcome, and no one's going to get hurt or killed over that. Now, I haven't been operational since 2010, so it's been 11 years since I, I had that type of responsibility. Back in the day, that was absolutely something that concerned me. So right now, what I I would, exp- I would categorize it more as anxiety than fear. So I am anxious to make sure that I set my almost 18-year-old daughter up for success next year when she goes off to college, hopefully here at West Point, or wherever she ends up. I'm anxious about retiring in May. I'm anxious about my health and my future, but I'm not fearful for it like I was in the past. So I think that's that's a big difference uh, between what I used to be concerned about and the things that drive me now. So I am I am worried about the, the future of our country. I'm worried about a lot of things, but I'm not fearful about it, Chris
0: that's that's a good distinction to make and i think we've warmed up everybody enough and everybody that's been listening has paid their dues enough that i'm uh, i think we've done enough foreplay so i'm going to get right to the $64,000 question and charlie i'll start back with you then and, and this is totally up to you guys if you're comfortable going down this path but is there a moment when we talk about fear when we talk about actual fear and again it could be something as simple as just talking to girls or whatever but or something as as let's say not life and death, you know, the, the stakes are not life and death. But is there a moment that you look back at and go, that's what fear is. And that's why what I'm going through right now is not fear. It's just anxiety. It's just neuroses or whatever else.
3: Chris, a I, moment I, like that? I'm glad you asked that question because I, I wrote down two incidents that I hope we'd be able to yep. get, get a chance to talk about. And it I'll is. get to both those in just a minute. So I'll also say that I think that one of the reasons that I was not, Fearful, more fearful when I was doing a lot of things in the military was because I was a bit naive. So I never felt I never thought that anything that I was aware that bad things could happen, but I, I was always sure that would never happen to me. Like I was never gonna get blown up driving down Route Irish, or we were never gonna get shot down flying into Nangarhar or anything like that. It just wasn't gonna happen to me. So most of the time when we were downrange, when when in the early days of the Iraq war, when we we're getting shelled at Bagram, living in in, in tents. Um it was kind of funny. I mean, I remember one of the warrant officers fell asleep uh with with, he had his helmet on, he was lying flat, and he had his 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 DVD player um on his chest and he fell asleep watching DVD while we're getting rocketed because everyone believed it wasn't going to happen to us. But I'll tell you two incidents real quick that I believed it was going to happen to me. The first time I was in fifth group and we're getting ready to do a water landing. And I was the commander of the group in my detachment. So we were in the pool. Getting doing the, the drown proofing training, getting ready to go do this water jump. Water jumps are great. You, you're in PT clothes, you walk off the, the ramp of a MH 47, you wear tennis shoes, and some dude comes and picks you up in a boat. It's great. Training for it, not so freaking great. So we were at the pool there at Fort Campbell, put the chute in, and then because I was commander, I went first. And then the idea, of course, anyone who's trained paratroop, you follow the radio seam to the middle and you don't die. Well, I got under there and they had we had let the the water settle so much there's standing water on top of the chute. So when I got under there and you try to do the punch up thing, that breathes well. But when you do that, it's like a soaking wet plastic bag attaches itself from your wrist all the way down your face. You can't breathe through that. So long story short on this, I thought I was going to drown in that pool. And the only reason I didn't call for help, I tried, but I had so much water coming in that I couldn't I couldn't call for help. So I was sitting there floundering, and somehow I ended up in the in the apex, and I could breathe again. And then I swam out of there like I did it on purpose. And then we you know sat down for like twenty minutes because I had so much water in my lungs. So that's the first time I remember being genuinely fearful I was going to die. And the second time was closely related when I was in the one hundred and sixty. At a couple of years later, I was doing Green Platoon. Whether we went down to Florida for the the pilot's drown proofing. Now I'm not a pilot. But I was in Green Platoon, and it just helps build credibility when the support guys do the things the operations guys can do, right? So I I drove with them down there. We drove from Fort Campbell down to to wherever it was in Florida. We were going – I took 75 down through Georgia. Chris, we stopped off, um, saw our old school there in in Mercer University in Macon where Chris Otero and I went to school. Got down there, and they had this enormous setup. So they had this this, um, gigantic pool, and we swam around it all day doing, like, little – maneuvers and things. And the culminating event was the rollover trainer. So many of the aviators out there, all the aviators you know exactly what I'm talking about. So mock-up of a, of a CH-47. Actually, it was a mock-up of a Blackhawk. We're in this Blackhawk. And the concept is, okay, you've been swimming all day. You're really tired. So we're going to put you in this helicopter. We're going to drop it down the water and and you got to swim out. Okay. That doesn't sound so bad. Well, check it. It's going to hit the water. It's going to flip over and you got to swim out. Ooh, OK, that's a little that's a little bad. All right. But it's going to hit the water, flip over, fill up with water and you're going to be blindfolded and you can't start swimming out until it completely fills up. So all the aviators I was with had done this numerous times. This is the first time for me. So I was terrified and I knew I was weak because we'd been practicing so hard all day climbing Um, climbing caving ladders in, in, you know, hurricane uh, simulated weather. So I was really worried about it because once I get, even if I get out of the helicopter, how am I going to know which way to swim? Um, But this goes back to what we're talking about with the fear of being worse than the thing, because of course, as soon as I got out of there, the helmet's buoyant and brings you right up to the surface. So, but those two times, Chris, were the two times I really thought that I, I might die in these situations and they both had to deal with water. Yep, I was about to
0: say, yeah. Let the record show that Charlie Faint did not had had his two worst experiences in the water, and why he is in the army, and, 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 and for anyone that was wondering,
3: and they didn't involve heights or girls. It was weird. <laughs> That's
0: right. That's right. Um, Chris, how about you?
2: Yeah, I'll uh, share two. Uh, one of them, which I haven't shared with only one other person, of course. So I'll 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 relate today. It. But the. Both of them happened on the same rotation. I did a 2007-2008 surge rotation into Iraq up in Kirkuk. And, you know, about two months into that rotation, about two or three months into the rotation, we were supposed to go out, you know, my brigade commander, the Brigade S-3 and myself, the Brigade S-2, were supposed to go out to uh, to a village out on the Denny Loop, which was this, you know, right up against against the Tigris River, you know, right on the far, you know, western boundary of our AO. About 10 minutes before we were supposed to go out on I was supposed to go into the vehicle, all our ISR got pulled for this operation we were doing. And the brigade commanders looked at me and said, Chris, I need you to stay back and you know, at least get some of that back for us. And I'm like, Yeah, okay, not a problem. And we were in our jump talk because we were actually out, you know, out doing like you know, live operation. Right. And about two hours later. I watched the third vehicle in that column fly apart. They basically offered two 125-millimeter rounds into the road as an IED. It pretty much cut the vehicle in half, killed five people. And I didn't really realize at the time, because, of course, when something like that happens to your commander's PSD, just you're busy for, like, the next 24 hours. But, you know, when he came back, my break and was very affected by that. And we were trying to basically get him back into the fight and everything like that. And Ray S3 kind of told me something. He said, you realize that was the vehicle you were going to be in, right? And I was like, yes, I now realize that you just told me that. And psychologically, for like the next, you know, several weeks, I kept going back to that of like, you know, Russian mortality. There was that there's three vehicles in that column. I would have been in the third vehicle, the one that got blown up. You know, and it would have been a certainty because there was no walking away from that IED strike. I mean, there was there was like a tire of a piece for the axle and the hood that was left of that vehicle when it was blown apart, you know, and so that was kind of a brush. But the one that still haunts me to this day, because I got over that first one. I mean, I still think about it, but I mean, yeah, that that
0: makes you question some philosophical things. That puts you in a philosophical head state. Why? What if? You know, all that stuff. Yeah.
2: But the second, one was a, one. the second one was a little bit more elemental. was that that same rotation. Uh, we had a suicide bomber, you know, SV did make a run at one of our brand new FOPs we put out there. It uh, hit the truck because at that point we didn't have the gate up, but it hit the MRAP that we were using as a gate. It totally blew it apart. It was a Mascow. We had like 40 injured, you know, inside that, you know, small little patrol base. It was pretty bad. And because of some stuff that we had seen, we were pretty certain that one of the guys that got wounded, you know, one of the local national workers that had been working on the patrol base, that had gone right outside with somebody that was involved with it. And so that guy had actually got back, back to our clinic, you know, to be worked on. And so one of the things was like, well, we basically got to get into his pocket litter. We got to get his phone. We got to, to do all this other stuff sure. to take a look at this guy. Yeah. But when I went to the clinic with, you know, one of our THT guys to basically find it, it was a mass cattle. They basically put all that stuff into the medical waste bin and put it out back. And with 40 dudes, you know, yeah. some who lost, you know, limbs, you know, and all that stuff, we had to go out there into the medical waste bin in the heat in Iraq and open up all of that stuff. And, you know, start just pulling out everything. And, I mean, it was just, I mean, without going into this graphic detail, you know, just fill in the blanks of what you're pulling out of there. I had four soldiers with me and three of them tapped out immediately. He's saying, we just can't do this. This this, this is just too gangster. Yeah. So, you know, we were in there, you know, I was in there basically rifling through to try to find all the stuff. And what was really interesting was that about a year later, I had a nightmare where I was inside the bag and I was looking up out of the bag at my own face, you know, rifling through the bag and all the smells and everything just kind of came back to me. And I had that nightmare about once or twice a year recurring ever since then. You know, when we talk about PTSD Mm -hmm. and things like that, I don't really have the PTSD that other folks have. I mean, I mean, I think the fact that I was a little bit older of a of a guy and a little bit more accomplished when I actually went to war, I just kind of internalized a little better. And certainly with what, what I do now, I mean, I can make my peace with that kind of stuff. But that non combat diving into a bio, you know, a bio waste bag, just pulling stuff out, sending it on the inside of the connex, you know, trying to look for that stuff. Still haunts me to this day, and that's something that you know I still have nightmares about. I mean, I'm no, I'm no victim. I'm no Pete. I'm not PTSD. Right. out right. Like that, but it's just something that just I do think about a lot, and it does still haunt me on that one.
0: It's funny, you know, the fears that we have as adults, and the and the and these major, you know, significant emotional events that we go through as adults, it, they stand out. They stick with us, like in your case, Chris, for years after or forever after. But they don't. um, Do you find that they change your behavior at all the way those kind of primal fears you overcame as a kid do? Or do you find, no, it's just something you learn to cope with because you're already fully actualized as an adult. You've kind of internalized all the lessons you're going to internalize, and it doesn't have that same behavior modification aspect to it that some of those primal fears when you were a kid did?
2: I feel in some cases, there are certain things that can make me melancholic. But the reality is, I think it's more the second of what you said, is that you just learn to internalize them because of the responsibilities that we've taken on in our life. I mean, I'm in as a cop. You know, Charlie is, you know, teaching at West Point. I'm a firefighter. You have to be effective. And even though I basically talked about earlier that I have empathy for people that have to do a thing, you know, for those that basically have to do the jobs like being a firefighter, teaching the nation's officers, being the cop. You know, you're not without the fears, but you still got to be effective. You have to do the job or else things are going to happen. So whatever it is you're dealing with, you got to figure out a way to basically internalize it, you know, make it work to your advantage. Uh, Some people can't do that. I mean, alcohol abuse, uh, drug Mm -hmm. abuse is rampant in firefighters and in cops out there as well. If I, I, you know, what I'm led to, you know, if I, if I basically speak that, but. You know, so some people just can't handle it after a while. And there does become a cumulative thing where a person's cup does become full and they're no longer effective. And that is probably a topic that we can sequel to. But at the end of the day, I mean, you just have to be effective and you internalize it and you move on. But it doesn't mean that you don't forget it.
0: Yeah. And I just want to point out here before I go to Iman, Chris just nailed the exact specific problem with A Few Good Men, the movie, and my biggest problem with it. Because the whole movie is is premised on the fact that, hey, you know, the moral that the Marine at the end says, he says, hey, we were supposed to take care of the weak. We should have taken care of that other Marine. It's like, no, 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 no. He's a Marine, though. I mean, yes, you shouldn't have killed him. But he's a Marine. If he's not strong enough to take care of himself and to handle his problems, that's an issue. And it's not. And yes, you help the weak that are not Marines. But if you're going to be a Marine, we need you capable of helping others, not simply fighting a battle just to function as yourself, that there's an obligation in a, in a life and death profession to not be a victim. And that does cause internalizations, that does cause repression, that can lead to drinking and other abuses because you're you're sometimes repressing a lot. But the obligation is on you to be saving other people and and not to be the victim. Um Anyway, I just want to point that out because that movie always drives me nuts at the end.
2: One of the hardest lessons I have ever had to learn in my life, and this is something that I have to constantly balance with my sense of empathy and justice for people, is that sometimes the best thing you can do to help a person is to help them exit the profession that they're in. You know, send them home, save their life, you know, by basically getting them to a different place. Even if they stay in the organization, get them to a desk job, get them away from the fight. And, you know, and sometimes That's the best thing, too. I mentioned it in the chat. It's just that we lost a third of our class in Firefighting Academy. And those were some good kids in there. I mean, they volunteered to be freaking firefighters, crying out loud. But you know what? There was something that they couldn't do or something they could not get over. And even though you feel for them, the right thing to do is to get them on their way and not there. And I think that is something that, you know, in the Army, we didn't always do a good job of. In firefighting, I think we do a better job of it just because the stakes are a little bit more in your face than necessarily in the army, which I know it sounds really bizarre, but.
0: Well, you have the ability yeah. to fire people, right? Yeah. I mean, in the army, you don't, you know, as much, yeah, or are uh, much less. I don't want to steal Charlie's line. Charlie, do you want to say the line you put out in the chat? Because I think it's a good line to sum that up.
3: Yeah. Chris Otero and I were talking in the chat. He just mentioned what he was talking about, about this profession not being for you. And I, I replied with an observation, it's the same here at West Point, along the lines of, hey, you're a good kid, but you probably need to be a good kid somewhere else. Our profession isn't for everyone. And Chris brought up a great point that sometimes the best thing we can do, not only for that individual, but for the profession and for the nation is saying, hey, you're great, but you're not great as this. There's many ways to serve. Go be great somewhere else.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Without further ado, Iman, let's... let's. Uh go down that path with you. What are you, what's your ex- personal experience with fear that you want to bring up?
1: So um, the two, two most significant ones, I, I one of them being uh, where um, a friend of mine dot, that got killed in Iraq, um, uh, William Allers. Um, and uh, that one was, you know, we're going down this route and uh, he wanted to go. Well, at first he wanted to go right. We were going to go left. Then we're like, ah, last minute, we changed. We all turned. Okay, fine. We'll go right. You go left. So Murphy's Law. He goes left and hits the IED. Gets uh, gets killed. And I guess you know when we had to go, you know, back them up, uh, secure the perimeter, and you know, in case it was an ambush, neutralize whatever enemy forces coming at them. Um, but when I, when we got there and, and I dismounted and see the sheer chaos and, and fear, uh, those guys had, but yet pushed through, we all did, uh, we all pushed through the smoke, the, the fire, everything we all, uh, you know, I, I landed the Blackhawk. It became automatic all of a sudden, you know, that's where you were talking about, you know, where sometimes you just go on autopilot. The fear is so there intense, But that's where that whole cliched adage, your, your training takes over because it's real that that shit is as real as it gets. And that me with overwhelming fear, uh, landing the helicopter, grabbing uh, one of the litter handles for, because, you know, short bodies, like whatever needed to be done to get people uh, away and the wounded away. Um, And playing with the Sing guards like just replaying in my head I I couldn't believe I did any of that or had the dexterity Mm -hmm. to even move the numbers and switch because uh my battalion commander needed uh needed to be able to talk to our air support and other units so I had to do the you know two two different frequencies to get that done at the same time talking to battalion talk but uh you know everyone had that we collectively did and and uh, to this day, it's still you know that that's sort of the thing that annoys me is not only did he go the other way that we were supposed to go and get killed, but also the entire scene you know the what what I saw the smells the uh, the anger you know that we had after and and it was you know we went out there for justice you know and and yeah. it was it was uh, very intense for like a couple days you know just. Because we were that close to uh, being a casualty ourselves. Sure. And unfortunately, our squad mates where we switched, like, yeah, sure, we'll go this way. And, you know, they get killed. You know, so you have that fear, fear of fear of actually uh, feeling guilt, I guess, you know, where, yep. you know, the survivor's guilt. Yep. You know, sure. that kind of gets overwhelming for a lot of us, uh, especially being overseas and have Murphy's Law, you know, work it, work it. Work its way. Um, the other one is uh, my very, 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 very first call. Uh, this is a funny one first call as a cop. Graduated the academy, did my whole FTO rotation. Now I'm sitting alone, downtown Boston. I'm on my own. And <laughs> my fear struck me uh, with my very, very first call. And it was a disturbance going on at one of the train stations. And I'm like, whew, okay, here we go. <laughs> like I didn't know what I was walking into. It like sure. it's it's that rush that that every cop gets going to a call, not knowing what it's going to be. One getting disappointed, it's not what it is because everything is okay, or or you know right. because we get worked up, we're thinking, oh yeah, this might be a fight, this might be this a stabbing, whatever. So again, like Seneca says, our imagination. Gets to us, sure. uh, you know, and and then when you hit the reality, you're like, oh, all right, you know, and right. and though you know, I operate, uh, kind of condition myself to operate no matter what, even fear or not, my body automatically takes over. Uh, same like when I'm stepping out of, out of a Bearcat on SWAT and we're about to hit the door, my fear is in the ride itself. You know, you get the butterflies, like okay, all right, you know do my breathing technique, the combat breathing and everything. And once you hear one minute out, they open the door. I'm bam. I'm feeling, I know my heart rate. Actually, I wore an Apple watch once and um, I nearly uh, shot and killed a guy reaching for a gun uh, during a SWAT hit. And my heart rate was at 209. And I had no idea because it was that intense that, you know uh, you know i had a split second where the trigger was being pulled and he gave up and i you know let it go and and you know that's it but it, it was that whole uh playing in my head it was a really bad guy a known gang enforcer a shooter we know he's done really really dangerous things i was number one with the shield and all i can think of all right i'm the linebacker for all my guys You know, and make sure I do my job very, very well because there we know this guy is a shooter. He's right. right. Our projection for a firefight with him, I I put it at 97%, you know, because we just knew the the way this guy is and all the briefing and everything we've learned. So I'm thinking of all that at the same time, make sure that shields up because the target bedroom is right in front of us in case he starts shooting. I want to make sure my guys were covered. And when we finally make entry and I see him reaching and there was a Glock, it uh, was a Glock handgun right on his bed. And my, it was almost a contact shot. It was going to be because I was moving so fast to, to get him oh. to not even go for it. And to see my heart rate at two Oh nine in that instant, it reminded me of what it was like in Iraq. You know, when, sure. when we dealt with Aller's death and, mm-hmm. and other uh, major incidents that, that happened and, I remember three days after that, I had a panic attack because of that particular mission, uh, not in Iraq, but uh, the last mission we did. And I realized that that is my fear that I bottled up and didn't get it, give it a chance to get out, you know, after the operation and stuff like that, because as cops, yeah, work the operation. Now I'm back at work, you know, so we yeah. don't have time to do any of that. And I neglected it, which resulted in panic attack is because of all that intense fear I felt in that three second movement, even though it sounded like a lot, but you guys know how it is doing entries. It's it's literally seconds. So in that three second movement to this guy's door, all those feelings to the point of almost a contact shot uh, came out. And, and it made me realize how much fear I actually had.
0: It's interesting. I appreciate the graphic description of it. Um, not the disgusting description. I don't mean that graphic. <laughs> yeah. but I mean, graphic like the blow by blow yeah. of it, because I think it's important for people um, and even a lot of people in the military never get to experience that. And I think it's important for everyone that hasn't experienced that to understand what it's like to hit the brakes when you're in that headspace. Um, when we talk about you know, uh, officer-involved shootings and when you talk about life and death situations and the Monday morning quarterbacking that can happen um, to fully appreciate just what that means um, on a real, on a, on a, on a granular level uh, for the officers involved, um, did that change you? Did that end up changing your mind or just make you, was it just kind of confirmation that, hey, I think the way I've been training, the way I've been thinking is working and I'm just going to double down on it?
1: So, yeah, I mean, early in my law enforcement career, given um, from the military, I think being at war and coming back and and the healing time and then becoming a cop. And, you know, the the confidence I had already in my abilities to do my job if there were combat, um, because uh, I, I, you know, I made it home, you know, from Iraq. I did, you know, did a bunch of shit over there. But to me, it was it's, it's you know, being being here present in the moment and, and pushing through uh, that, that fear that, that you feel.
0: There's so much more to say about this, and I don't want to soak up everybody's Saturday on, on this totally. Um, This was, uh, I I really appreciate you guys sharing all that um, with me. I would have shared mine, but we're running short on time. And that's not just that I'm not just pulling a Charlie faint and trying to get out of a a, a (laughs) difficult and troubling answer. (laughs) Um, so, uh, let me, let me, uh, go around the horn. Uh, Charlie, what's going on in second mission.
3: Hey, we're still getting ready for more books. We got a lot of more, a lot more folks approaching us about getting their veteran themed books out on the street. Really excited about that. Looking forward to helping support vet rep. I know you guys got a lot of exciting things going on here in the coming months. And uh, just want to reiterate, I mean, I think it's the first time I saw you since we were up there in Boston for the Vet2Vet event. Really appreciate your hospitality up there in Boston and I look forward to seeing you again soon. So thanks, Chris. That's all I got.
0: Okay. Chris Otero um, had an early day from from firefighting, which is why he was able to be here with us. Chris, uh, any news, any updates, any further endorsement you can give to vets that are looking for a way to more meaningfully spend their time post-military service?
2: No, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. Uh, I mean, I've kind of basically talked it before, was this that I have, there's 10,001 theories out there why vets have trouble when they get out or why they have adjustment disorder or why even the veteran suicides. And, you know, one of my private ones that I tend to think is that I think that, you know, people spend time in the military, which... It's like an all the to just total balls to wall experience for a lot of people. And then they come back and they're out of it now. And just the disassociation from being part of a team is something that I think really rackles a lot of people. And I think, you know, it's a contributing factor to a lot of, you know, some of the issues that have, some of the pathologies that we see. Uh, volunteer firefighting, as I kind of talked about before, 70% of the firefighters in the country are volunteers. I mean, really, the only people that really have Large professional firefighters anymore, really the cities. And even there, a lot of cities have a volunteer auxiliary or a that you can go into, or you just go five minutes outside the town and there's volunteer firefighters and you have mixed departments and everything like that. So, you know, as long as you are healthy, as long as you are willing to do the work, the volunteer firefighting is for you. I mean, it's not just, and there's a lot of different aspects to it. I mean, if you don't want to go inside, a building, and you know, go into a burning room. You could be an exterior firefighter. I mean, someone needs to throw the ladder. Someone needs to throw set up the hydrant. Someone needs to do all the stuff that needs to happen on a fireground. Like I said, there's ten thousand one things that happen on a fireground. We have people whose level of involvement is just beefo and that is it. It's
0: you know, around and around so
2: around. yeah, you know, and so what I just think is just that, you know, if you are looking to be part of a team, if you're looking to be part of something. And you don't want to do the whole BFW and bet, sit at the bar and drink and tell a story kind of thing, but you actually want to be part of the team. You could you could hardly do worse than become a volunteer firefighter.
0: It's a great endorsement. And um, I'm glad you make it when you're on because um, I think that's really worth people hearing. I'm in Project Sapient blowing up, except on YouTube. But outside of that, yeah. it's, it's blowing up it's huge. So tell, tell me what, what's <laughs> going on with you guys these days.
1: Uh, so we're, uh, we're tackling some uh, some really tough issues uh, in the law enforcement co- uh, community, uh, mostly about uh, the idea of quotas and what it actually looks like versus what the perception of the public is. Uh, so it's, it's, it's going to be a very, very difficult conversation. Uh, we have some police officers who have come forward around the country <laughs> again the you know the power wow. of, of of podcasts and social media um so, uh, a few officers uh, uh who want to remain anonymous and all that so we had to we had to kind of work on that aspect but call out their own departments you know wow. regarding this wow. tough issue so i didn't realize how 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 bad it was till i started getting the messages yep. You know, so, so that's, that's one major thing that, that we're working on. And, um, actually, uh, Charlie, you, you guys met 22 Mohawks, um, we're, we're, we're stunning to do a lot with them especially me within, within the veteran community uh, we just did a uh, get together a couple of weeks ago at a local place here uh, where I live and now uh, you know uh, we've got we've got all sorts of things lining up for, into next year that uh, that I think are going to be great for veterans and and I agree going to the Vfw gets old because it's all story talkers and uh, and we and and I tend to Tell all my fellow veterans to go do something outside, uh, do uh, do something out there, and uh, you know get out and 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 go into nature. Uh, actually, um, I'm going to interview uh, this retired lieutenant who was on my SWAT team. He was one of the SWAT commanders, uh, element leaders. He did the Appalachian Trail, two thousand oh, really? three hundred oh. miles uh, for PTSD uh, from his military time and law enforcement time, and he told me. It was like a light switch that went on. He's he's in so much peace wow. because it was such a uh experience for him that he said it flipped the mood right away.
0: Wow. That's, so that's
1: incredible. Gonna be, wow. Yeah. So that's gonna be something on, on our podcast that we're gonna have him uh talk about that journey.
0: Very cool. Iman, Chris, Charlie. Thanks, guys. Thanks for being here and thanks for sharing this.
2: Hey, great episode, Chris. Thanks. Yep. Hey, thanks a lot for having me on. Yeah, Thank you.
0: Always a pleasure, guys. To everyone else, if you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe. If you're on iTunes, we would love your five-star review. You can say whatever you want about us. You can talk about Charlie even. We don't care. As long as you attach it to a five-star review, though, that's the important piece uh, because the metrics do matter. Show notes will be available at the theweeklyhavoc.podbean.com. Probably won't be too many, but what there are and certainly the plugs that we're putting out, we will put at havoc.podbean.com, or they will also be in my article that I write for Havoc Journal about this episode, or they will be wherever you're listening to this episode. You can just scroll up or scroll down, and you will see the show notes there. You will also see alibis for anything I misstated, misremembered, something that needed more context. That offer, as always, we extend to our guests, although generally nobody takes me up on that because I'm the only one who tends to brain fart in a way that I have to mitigate by writing something about it after. From Ernest Hemingway to Lee Marvin, from Jimi Hendrix to Mel Brooks, there has always been a very special type of American with one foot in the warrior world and one foot in the artist world. And after 20 years of war, a whole new generation of veterans are infiltrating artistic realms from poetry to theater, from dance to metal, from watercolor painting to stand-up comedy. Savage Wonder is a podcast about warriors and artists. It is produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events, which, full disclosure, is my nonprofit. So if you want to hear me conduct one-on-one long-form interviews with veterans of the military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence services, or DOD contractors who are artists, please consider adding the Savage Wonder podcast to your queue. You can also find it at savagewonder.podbean.com. Again, that's savagewonder.podbean.com. As always, thanks to our producer Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Iman Kafel, Christopher Otero, and Charlie Faint. And we'll keep trying to make order out of chaos. And we we'll see you next time for the weekly havoc.
1: If, if you really want to know if something works, give it to a veteran and they'll, they'll, <laughs>
3: they'll, they'll, they'll make it work. So basically, this is just Motor Pool Monday for these guys. Pretty much. Just, <laughs> yeah, just taking it out there and seeing how fast it goes. Exactly.
0: Except, right. except without having to do a risk assessment. Yeah. So, you, so you know nothing's <laughs> going to go wrong.
1: Well, like like uh, I laughed when I read on the Army Times about the new uh, vehicle that's going to replace the Humvees was wrecked in two days. Um, I forget where by a bunch of privates. I said, see, that's what you need. Take a bunch of privates, have them take out a brand new piece of equipment. They'll find a way to break it.
3: <laughs> yeah, I'd be suspect if they didn't break it. <laughs> exactly. If it didn't come back broken, that means they didn't try very hard. Yeah,
1: exactly. 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 Ha <laughs> ha.